Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. I'm the betrayed partner, and June 6th of last year was D-Day. My husband's sober and working recovery since then. He has a long ways to go, still unable to be emotionally supportive, express empathy, or have difficult conversations. I wonder how long I will feel like everything is fake, like he does not really love or want me. I also have a question about restitution or amends. What should that look like? Is it even possible to make up for this kind of betrayal? So so I kind of gave my thoughts on it, but you know, please, please share. Well, well I wonder what you, um, my door and earbuds aren't working. Tammy, what, are, what is meant by D-Day? Do you think it means disclosure or discovery? No, that I, that I took that as discovery. So I think it was discovery a year ago and now he's, okay. yeah, cause it doesn't say disclosure. So to me, that is discovery. Right. Well, these are different questions. I mean, what I hear is this couple is very, very new at this. It's been about a year. What I'm not hearing as you would say is where's the therapy piece. Right. In other words, I hear he's sober. I don't see that he's getting what kind of support he's getting. He has a long way to go. We all do. Um, unable to be emotionally supportive, express empathy. I think that's typical for us in the first year. Tommy would say, I think that in the first year, uh, that was how we did express our feelings and disappear was the acting out. So learning how to be a decent human being who knows how to say what we have to say. Assertiveness is not our skill set. Um, Emotional empathy is not our skill set, or we never would have done what we did in the first place. So I think that that the part of the work you're talking about is a later step. Just getting sober is the hardest part. And then it's sort of like, who am I? What am I? What do I do now? Although I will say this to you that, you know, I wrote a book about this called Out of the Doghouse. And the reason I wrote it is uh, Out of the Doghouse, a, a uh, relationship saving guide for men caught cheating. And, you know, this is not an atypical situation. Most of the men that I work with really don't understand the harm that they've caused or the degree of harm they've caused when they betrayed a woman. And I often, the reason I wrote the book is, you know, we think candy and flowers and when are you going to get over it (laughs) is how it's supposed to go. And the reality is that it takes you, it it is a a very long period. If we're on our best behavior before you're going to feel good about us, I mean, a year or more. And most guys are like, it's been three months. You know, I got a sobriety chip. Where are you? You know, and they don't understand what the harm. And so that's why I wrote the book, um, because I want them to read it and say, oh, this is what I have to do to make it better. And they don't quite get that. Um, you know, Tammy, did you come out of men's? Because I'm just wondering, of course, it's possible to. Mm, I wouldn't say make up. You can never take away the betrayal. But I do think it's possible to move beyond that betrayal. But Tammy, what did you say about restitution or men's? I'm curious what you well, said. Well, I used your analogy about restitution, like the the client who had um, had taken his children's college fund and he he made restitution to the college fund. So there are some right. things where you can directly make amend or make restitution. 
others. It's learning to do life differently, to show up, be there, you know, be truly be present. I mean, that's part of restitution. You can never undo what you did. I mean, you can't, but you can do things differently, you know, and show up in a meaningful way for, for people. And that can be, but I did share too, that, you know, I have seen so many people heal so many couples heal and move forward in a different way in a eyes wide open, honest way. Um, still knowing that the, you know, betrayal can happen, you know, it's not the naive version of, Oh, we're here together or just, you know, it's, it's very different, but I have seen so many couples be able to move forward in a different way. I was going to say, thank you, Tammy. They can, and they do. In fact, the way I think about it is, you know, you break trust. It's a broken plate. Um, you can't, put the plate back. I mean, it'll never be the plate it was, but you can glue it back together. And actually the glue space is going to be where it's strongest. So, but the question about amends, I just wanted to say, because that's also important. First, I want to go to the other side of it, which is you have no obligation to, to forgive this person until you are ready. You have no obligation to respond to any of their, I'm sorry, and I wish I hadn't done this to you. And I didn't, you know, all of that stuff is not your stuff. Your stuff would sound like what you're looking for above. Like, I'm so sorry I did this to you. And how is it going for you? And what are you going through? And, you know, the focus on the first part is more about me. But the one thing I, I, I want to say about this, Tammy, and I didn't hear if you mentioned is we do something called disclosure in therapy and we take couples not not me we but we take couples as professionals who do this work and tammy can always refer you to one and we evaluate everything that this client has done and everything the partner's asking and we sit down and give you all your answers and this is how we find couples go forward is with a clean slate with a new foundation because what you're asking is very difficult I think if you, you know, this isn't just like, um, I don't know, like, like, and I don't mean to make this light or anything, but it's not like he went drinking and now he stopped. Um, this is a much more complicated issue because it's personal for you. It's personal for the family and the relationships. I will shut up, but I'll say exactly what Tammy said. What you're asking for is what you should start to see when someone's in recovery. Not only that they're going to meetings, they say they're sober, but they're beginning to show empathy. He should naturally be starting to spend more time with the family, naturally starting to show up more because he realizes what he's done. And if not, you know, then I would be more concerned about what he is doing in his recovery. And by the way, none of this happens if he's still acting out or is still lying to you or still, and I bet you I gave the same answer to how he did. <laughs> I'll, uh, to, a, to a degree. And I also said like amends in the 12 steps is steps eight and nine. So it is, we can't make amends and go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, you know, it, it, we have to do some real work in order to get to the point where we are making amends. And I did talk about a living amends as well. So so great. Okay. All right. So we'll move on to the next question. I've been addicted to porn for over two decades, high dozer, but have been sober and in recovery since early April. I'm committed to doing everything I can not to relapse and fall back into porn and masturbation. Is it true that all addicts will relapse? No. What can I do to bolster my chances of completely eliminating that possibility? They use the broad term addict. So you can go through go the ahead. porn addicts too. Well, you, it, said the, you said the no, so you should start. I do because like, like it's one of my, I get tripped up in 12-step in meetings that I go to when everybody minimizes relapse. And, it, you know, I think you, you, you may have a slip, you know, and especially with porn or something like that, right. there may be some, but a relapse is different. And, and I think 
Um, I, and I'm on some Facebook groups for recovery too. And I get, I get challenged when people just automatically assume that relapse, it has to be part of the equation. I don't think it does. I think for many people, the journey is what the journey is planning. Here's where I get caught. I think is because if you go relapse is going to happen, I think it's like, you're going, it's going to happen. So I'm just going to give into it rather than going, you know, I need to pick up the phone or do whatever I need to do to not have that happen. I think it's like giving ourselves permission, like, Oh, it's just part of it. You know, and, and for porn and masturbation, that's one level, but for some people like the chem sex and stuff, you don't know what the next relapse is going to do. You, you just don't know. And so, so I always feel like it's Russian roulette and, and it's dangerous. You know, I, I think it also erodes our, you know, like a, a, a relapse also erodes you know, our, our integrity. It's one of those where I'm really trying to do this and now, oh, I failed. And it's, you know, I mean, the, the sense of shame, all of those things. So it doesn't have to be, if you have enough support, if you've done enough work, I think that you can have the tools in place. Is it challenging? Absolutely. It's, you know, we're at, we're living a completely abnormal life. I mean, like <laughs> I'm not supposed to be in recovery. I mean, trust me, you know, and but I'm doing enough of the right things on a day-to-day -day basis to continue to maintain that. So now I'll shut up. Relapse. Is no, I think Tammy's answers are absolutely correct. The one thing I would add is that she mentioned a slip. And I think that's really important because relapse to me is we return the behavior and we, we just don't tell anyone. And then we're right back where we were lies and secrets and all that stuff. A slip might happen. You might, I mean, even on the best of, of our hard work, you know, we didn't, enter addiction because we were the particularly healthiest people to begin with. And so, you know, there may be situations and that's where our brain automatically goes to with unstress and whatever it is. And so, but I want to throw something out there and be a little bit, uh, what do I want to say? Something else to think about than we normally do. Of course, you can bolster your chances with the regular stuff. You can bolster it with 12-step meetings and getting support and learning how to reach out when you need it. You go to treatment, you go to therapy, you know, all of that, of course, is absolutely necessary or useful in your case, in every case, one or one by one. But the thing that I think for sex addicts we often miss is that we need to also enjoy our recovery. We need to have fine things that we look forward to. It's one of the main aspects that's actually asked of us a little different than some of the other 12-step programs is we're asked to actually make a list of things we will do, maybe not to replace the porn, but more to, because it won't, nothing's to replace that intensity that I can rush and disappear into that. That's not going away. But what, I, what do we hope to do is be able to kind of with a drip, 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 drip of having a great life instead of a rush of addiction. I said this to another woman the other night. She said, I don't have no life without what I was doing. I said, well, what do you like to do? You know, do you like to garden? Do you like to play bowling? Do you like to bowl? Do you like to drive cars? I mean, go find things that you like to do. They're not going to lead to addiction. And by the way, that's where you'll often find people who are not necessarily in recovery, but they are like you and you might have fun with them. The, the thing that I, that, Sometimes, and Tammy will absolutely agree with this, sometimes when people, may, people make their list of things they need to do to take care of themselves, they think, well, I'm going to go more meditation, more meetings, more rules, more restrictions, more three times a week, this or that. And all of that may be important, but you have to enjoy your life. Tammy would talk about, because she's an AA, sober dances. You know, people in sobriety think, oh, life's not going to be any fun anymore. What I'm going to do, they create fun so that you can get a sense that you can. So I, I had a friend of mine say, you know, we don't want recovery to be sackcloth and ashes where it's just, you know, misery. Why recover? So what you need to recover is either the life that you should be having or the life that you never had. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know if any more thoughts, Tammy. That yeah, I, I, two more thoughts. I was talking to somebody the other day, and and I said, "What did you used to? I mean, before this took hold of you, well, I used to do archery and you know, a couple other things, and but it's not just like you talked about. It's not the adrenaline, and so so this particular person wasn't thinking that was going to be enough anymore. I was like, you used to finding that meaningful. There are things that you can do. I also want to say for partners because I I hear this often with partners is they're reading every book and they're listening to and they're doing everything and i'm going sometimes just go out to coffee with a girlfriend and don't talk about addiction don't talk about like just have a cup of coffee with a friend and enjoy like like it can't be all about addict addiction whatever like both of you if you're in a relationship you know need that like what's the good healthy things that isn't just focused on you know and this is tough stuff you know a mental health break of like you know i'm gonna go i go run i go for a run i look around you know i need to be thinking about other things just like you're talking about the world is bigger we get very small in our addiction or worried about our loved one as well so so the next one is a common and i'm going to read it out loud I've been on this call chat, with my wife. Yeah. yeah, I put it in the, no, I put it in the answer. Oh, okay, sorry. I've been on this call with my wife many, many times alone tonight, have had great support from this and other SRH, that's sexandrelationshiphealing.com if you're listening to this after the fact on YouTube. Um, support groups, now years sober and relationship doing well. I have no question tonight, just a thank you staying the course. So thank you for sharing that. Well, and I think okay. we work very hard, not for the thank yous, but for you to get this experience. So the next question is encouraging to read. Oh, oh, it says encouraging to read this other person's statement. Can anyone recommend a counselor or therapist in the East Valley of Scottsdale? Email me, Tammy, T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.com. I've got a great one for you. So, um, okay. Uh, so the next one, are addicts usually void of emotions and empathy? Can an addict learn to have show emotions and empathy with treatment? That's a great question. Well, it's interesting. I'll say it this way. Um, there are female therapists who were interns who want to understand our work and who at times I have brought in to observe or go be a part of the learning process. We're not doing inter internships right now at Seeking Integrity because I really want all licensed people, but nonetheless, I've done it. And the reason I'm saying this is because when I have a woman come to one of our men's groups a number of times, she'll say things like, I didn't know men could have those feelings, or I didn't know that men cried. I've never seen men cry like that. And I sit in a room with, you know, six guys and one or two are, you know, on, well, they're not, you know, rocking back and forth crying and a couple of others are surrounding them, supporting. Really, I think the work we do is about bringing people together like a family, and then they learn how to be in a family. So, I, I think that it is an outside in, I mean, an inside out kind of thing. We can, it takes us a long time to show empathy and compassion. Um, it doesn't mean that we have it. Um, and I'll honestly say we run a great treatment center, but you can gain empathy and compassion without treatment. You just have to be giving service and doing for others rather than focused on yourselves and you will gain empathy and compassion. I'm going to say, are they, because it says, are they void of emotions? And I'm like, we're not yeah. void of emotions. We are avoiding emotions because we are, we are looking to, you know, to escape, numb out, like any intense emotions, you know, are challenging. I remember when I first got into recovery and all of a sudden I was faced with having to feel emotions, good or bad. It didn't matter. They were so uncomfortable. And I was, 
I couldn't identify him. It was really challenging. Of course, you know, you hang around long enough and you have good support, you learn. And you also learn that those uncomfortable feelings are uncomfortable, but they're not going to kill you, you know? So, so you just have to learn to be able to tolerate the discomfort. And we as addicts in active addiction aren't good at that at all, which again, sends us screaming, you know, for the hills to our acting out. And so one more thing I wanted to say about that, you know, part of our being more emotionally available to partners, and this is, it's hard to explain because I don't want you folks, partners to feel any differently about where you're at, where you are is where you are and you deserve it. Your anger, your fear, your upset, your investigations, you've been traumatized and victimized. And that doesn't mean we're really good at uh, facing anger. That doesn't mean we're any good with conflict. That doesn't mean that we addicts don't shut down when you get angry at us or upset with us, or that we don't feel so awful about what we did that we don't open up to you. And I also think this is part of what happens in treatment is people have to learn how to manage these kinds of things. But it, you know, I might be very emotional with my daughter, but then when, when my spouse says, where were you today? I might really shut down and that's not your fault. It's just, I don't know how to respond to conflict. My response to conflict is let me go look at porn or let me go out there and fight. You know, that's my response. And so learning how to tolerate, not only being more compassionate, but just learning how to manage conflict is, is a learned experience. I think all of it, Tammy said it's a, feelings, managing situations. It's new to us, believe it or not. We're only six years old emotionally. Okay. True. True. Okay, the next question, is the intimacy sex a sex addict has with their partner real, or are we being used in the same manner when they are acting out with prostitutes? Mm -hmm. That's a complicated question. Well, I, I think that, I don't think that sex addicts are uh, intimate with sex workers or affair partners or with porn. It, it's, intimacy is not sex. You know, into, uh, healthy sexuality comes out of intimacy uh, unless people are very young and they're doing recreational things and they're discovering the world. But when you're in a committed relationship, um, this is running from intimacy. And I want to be intimate with you, but you're the scariest person to me because uh, I'll just make it easy. That sex worker, that porn, that affair partner, they're never going to let me down. They're never going to make me feel like I'm not worthwhile or disappointed or like I hurt somebody because they're all fantasies. But you can hurt me. You can let me down. That's one of our wounds is getting close to someone who might really leave us feeling terrible, leaves us doing things that end up with us feeling terrible. So I don't think there's any similarity. And you know, this reminds me, Tammy, of a question that we hear a lot, which is how could she love me and do this? Or how could he love me and do this? And I wonder if you could drop in on that question because you get it so often. I, and I do. And it's so compartmentalized. And, you know, I was looking at this, you know, when acting out with prostitutes, that's transactional. I'm going to pay you and you're going to do for me. And there is no intimacy. There is no like fear of anything. Like they're not going to say no because they're getting paid for whatever. So, so it is completely different. And then as far as love goes, I think, I think when addicts say that they love you, they mean it. it but I also think that it's the shadow version because they are still always afraid that if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't love me. So, so they're always holding the, these you know, pieces back of themselves and they also know that they're lying to you. So, so it's so complicated. It's not like an easy, oh yes, this, that, but yeah, I really do believe that they love you. When they say they love you, they really mean it. It's just that they can't fully, you know, um, they can't 
be fully we're not whole with it. we're not we can't right. fully anything we're broken into pieces and intimacy yeah. we do love you intimacy love family we like that but or, or whatever we can get from it we also like running away from it and doing this because we can do both um well we think we can do both right right until we can't yes until we're caught and then all of a sudden it's like how did this happen so um so is there a difference between limerence and love addiction. And can you talk about what limerence is? Because not everybody will know. Now that's a long question. So I'll try to answer it as quickly as possible. Limerence is a human biological evolutionary process where when we meet somebody and we become meaningfully romantically engaged, we start to lose our ability to think clearly. <laughs> All of a sudden they're rainbows and moonbeams and can't tell every friend about how wonderful they are. And, and we feel that we just think about them and our day gets brighter. And this is a natural biochemical process of bonding. And if you want to understand the evolutionary piece, it's so that when we get together and we have a child, we will protect that child. Because if I didn't bond with you, Deeply, I would just walk away. So there's a reason for this kind of bonding. And that is what we, and it, you know, it, over time, it's, it, over time, it's become the road, not just the road to protecting children, but it's how we see the road to love is that, be, but that's not love. Every country music song, every poem, everything that's ever been written about love is about that. You know, to me, after being married 20 years, love is about who's going to the grocery store. <laughs> okay. Thank you for going. I love you. And I don't mean to say there isn't a deeper love, but, but, um, but uh, anyway, it's nothing like we have in a, in a casual relationship. So I think you're, if I were a partner, I'd be asking this too, but I think there's such different issues for us. And when you understand what we're struggling with in a deeper way, when we're able to talk about it, that will make more sense, but you will never feel, never feel like, oh, they didn't betray me. They were just doing this. You will never feel that way. If I was an alcoholic, you might get to, oh, this problem is his. I didn't cause him to drink. I didn't make him drink. You know. But if I'm betraying you with my behavior, it's never going to be something where you're going to feel uh, okay with uh, how could they love me and do this um, because it's so personal. So, so the question is, is there a difference between limerence and love addiction? And all right. So, sorry. Yeah. I, I no, it's okay. I loved, I, I loved all the <laughs> there explanation about limerence, okay. but well, limerence yeah, was help good. Us. So yeah. love addiction is, first of all, what is sex addiction? Sex addiction is objectifying people, not seeing them as whole human beings, more seeing them as body parts. I love that butt. I love those arms. I love that whatever. And then we kind of think, well, if I can have that emotionally, if that desires me, that makes me important. That makes me special. I have such a desperate need as a sex addict to feel worthwhile. It doesn't matter whether I'm going to say this on purpose, whether I'm president of the United States, and I'm thinking about maybe 20 years ago, um, you know, presidents who get in trouble and they are, I mean, how do I say this? Um, it doesn't matter whether, no matter how much recognition I get from the outside world, there's always a part of me, as Tammy says, it never going to feel good enough. So sex addicts use bodies, use people to make ourselves feel better. I always thought of love addiction as the graduate school for sex addiction, meaning I still don't see you as you are. I have this emotional emptiness, just like sex addicts, but I want to fill it with someone who's going to make me feel better. And so we date and get to know each other. And I just think you're starlight and moonbeams, but that's, and I just, I fall in love with that part. And then when you become a real person, I may not like you, Part of the reason is I think love addicts are so needful and so want to have that person to love them that they overlook 
really seeing who that person is while they're dating or getting to know each other. And then they realize a year or two later, why are you like this? And why are you like this? And why aren't you more like this? We were never different. You just didn't see it. You know, I, and I'm going to make an extreme example. I often say on in the rooms, you know, um, someone will say, a woman will say on a dating situation, you know, I thought he was amazing. I couldn't stop thinking about him after that time together. The fact that he uses heroin is still married to his wife. That doesn't matter to me. To me, that's love addiction. It's really not being able to use your intellect to, to discern if someone's healthy for you because you're so desperate emotionally to be loved or, or to feel a sense of love. But what you're getting isn't really love. You're just taking a, a square peg and stubbing it in a round hole and trying to make it fit. So just like a sex addict, love addicts need to come from a place of being full or at least being able to know that when they enter dating, they're going to have all this longing come up and therefore they need other people to help them be accountable to making the right choices because they won't. Limerence, limerence is great. Limerence is what it feels like to fall in love. Limerence is something every human being goes through, hopefully, and they're not, they don't do because they're broken. That's what human beings do. We fall in love. Notice it doesn't say we immediately become loving. It says we fall in love. That's what limerence is. And that's what love addiction feels like. It's just that love addicts want that to go on forever because that's really all they want from the situation is to feel the sense of adoration and excitement. And anyway, that's my, doing my best. On, on, on no, the that was very helpful. Thank you. Okay. So the next question, do all untreated sex addicts diseases eventually progress to unmanageable life or can some keep it their whole lives and have it never progressed to a bad level? Huh? That's a great question. Do you want to start with that, Tammy? Maybe I'm, speaking I, to all addictions, if you want. Well, yeah, I, was, I mean, I think, I think that there are some that can be on the fringe and kind of control things. Um, it, so I guess it depends. If they're in a relationship and they're hurting someone else, I mean, if you're a single person and you're you know, doing whatever and it's sort of problematic, but you don't lose your job and you don't have a family that you're hurting, you know, maybe, but it's kind of like drinking. It's like, there's a, some hardcore drinkers, you know, and they just, that's how they are. Now, does it eventually, I mean, really at the end of the day, you know, their livers are not so great. Their health is not so great, but you, you know, so neither are their kids. <laughs> right. Right. Well, if, mm -hmm. if, if you've got no other people that you're affecting, so then stay single, mm -hmm. don't get in relationships, you know, I mean, like don't hurt other people because otherwise, you know, I mean, it's always unmanageable. I'm I, I, like, I disagree that it's like somewhat manageable. You think you're managing it, but it's, you know, like if you're doing compulsive behavior, it has you by the tail. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, you're going to go do whatever you're going to do because you're feeling compelled to do that. So, so I think that there's always negative consequences. Are the consequences severe enough for someone to get help? No, I see a lot. Unfortunately, I see a lot of people who have some pretty severe consequences who still refuse to get help. So not there's unfortunately still too many people that choose to stay with their um, compulsive behavior. Well, and to build on that, Tammy, I mean, the word fear is to me, uh, to, there's two words here that really strike me, unmanageable life, because Tammy kind of touched on this. First of all, uh, what addiction most profoundly affects is our functionality. So I will become less functional at work, less functional with my partnership, less, fun less involved with my kids, less involved in my social life. Is that unmanageable? Um, not really to me, because I'm just living it. And I think, you know, it is what it is. It, 
it doesn't get the level of my attention until there's a crisis. But we can live, we're, human beings are endlessly adaptable. We can live with a lot of misery and we externalize. So I can say, well, it was that job. It's you. If I'd married someone else and in the sense of not being able, wanting to look at myself, I can keep pushing the thing away from me until I, things get so bad that I finally realize, oh, I have to look at myself. And so will people do this their whole lives and never have it progress to a bad level? Maybe like Tammy said, some people get drunk every night and they do okay, but will their lives be affected Will their relationships with their careers, will their education, will their dating that's living their life. That's, you know, I don't care if you drink or not, but if it's ruining your life, I think you should take a look at it. If you don't understand how it's ruining your life, check out what's going on around you with work and people look at your goals in life and see if what you're doing match up with your goals. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.